This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and in this episode we are in conversation, uh, and the interview is with Professor Sir David Canadine. Uh, and I was delighted to be able to sit down with David um, for a conversation uh, largely about philanthropy and history. Um, and I should give a shout out, first of all, to uh, Paul Ramsbottom at the Wolfson Foundation, who helped to set up the conversation, because uh, among the many other hats that he wears, uh, David is a trustee of the Wolfson Foundation. Um, as a bit of background on David, um, he is a historian, as I say, um, with a very uh, illustrious uh, career. Uh, so he's currently the Dodge Professor of History at Princeton University. Um, he's also a visiting professor of history at Oxford. He's previously uh, lectured at Cambridge and also had a professorship at Columbia in the US. He's involved with many different institutions as a trustee or a chair. Um, so he's chairman of trustees at the National Portrait Gallery in the UK. He's the vice chair on, of the editorial board of the uh, historical journal Past and Present. Uh, he was previously the director of the Institute for uh, Historical Research in London. And as I say before, he's also on the board of the Wilson Foundation. So as you'll hear in the conversation, he's got many different viewpoints on philanthropy. Um, he's also the author of a number of major books, um, largely sort of focusing on the history of the 19th and, and early 20th century. He's got particular interests in uh, the history of business, uh, the history of empire, and also the history of, uh, of philanthropy. And so he's written books including uh, the Victoria's Century, the United Kingdom, 1800 to 1906, uh, a book about the country housed, past, present and future, and particularly pertinent to philanthropy, uh, a book about Andrew Mellon. And we had a great conversation. As I say, so I started off asking David about how the various ways in which he's been involved in these kinds of different institutions had given him a perspective on philanthropy and, and what insights it had given him. And conversely, what insights perhaps his historical expertise had brought to, to some of those positions. And that led us on to kind of talking more broadly about um, the history of philanthropy as an area of academic study and whether as a theme within uh, history more broadly it was something that was kind of widely appreciated um, or whether there was more work to be done, uh, whether actually for most historians in an academic sense uh, they don't really think about things in those terms so it's perhaps something that, that gets overlooked. Um, we talked about how the academic study of the history of philanthropy could inform practice, um, both in terms of what the utility of it is for practitioners, but also kind of in more practical terms, how we could bridge some of that gap between um, academia and practice. We talked uh, quite a bit about David's work that he's doing at the moment, uh, writing a major new history of the Ford Foundation, which will be out, um, I think, within sort of a year or 18 months. And it was fascinating to hear about what he was finding there and some of the, the potential uh, interesting lessons, I think, for philanthropy more broadly from studying uh, the history, both both bad.
and, and good uh, of an institution like the Ford Foundation. Um, and we talked a bit uh, about whether the sort of archival inequality that you find in lots of areas meant that it was sometimes easier to write those histories of great institutions rather than uh, the histories of uh, sort of lower level mass giving and whether that introduced a kind of skewed view of philanthropy when you look at it historically. And then we talked about uh, some of the issues at the moment around the ways in which the the nature of how wealth is created uh, influence views about the legitimacy of giving it away. So the whole problem of tainted donations, which obviously is a problem that has been around for a very long time historically. So I was fascinated to get uh, David's view as a historian on some of those issues and how he'd kind of seen those play out in some of the the positions that he'd, he'd held at various institutions. And also um, some of those challenges have a particularly historical slant when the sources of money we're talking about are ones uh, from many hundreds of years ago and kind of how we deal with those um, in, in the modern context. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the, the conversation. I hope you enjoy it i found it absolutely fascinating uh, and i will be back at the end of the podcast for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up okay great so i'm here with professor sir david canadine hi david hello rodri uh, it's nice to be in touch it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast i'm very much looking forward to the the conversation um i don't know i mean you in preparing for this, I was uh, made even more aware than I already was of quite how many different hats you wear and how many things you've done throughout your illustrious career. So it's kind of hard to, to give a short descriptor. Um, so maybe the most sensible place to start would be if you're able to say a little bit about how the various different roles that you've had over time have brought you into contact with philanthropy in different ways and, and what sort of perspective that's given you. Yes, I'm very happy to do that. I am a sort of hydra with a lot of hats, um, uh, which is a rather strange configuration, but there is perhaps some truth in that. I mean, by trade and by training, I'm, of course, a historian, um, and that has always been, for me, the great um, uh, preoccupation of my professional life, the history of Britain, the history of the British Empire, and more broadly the history of uh, North American capitalism um, and philanthropy. Um, But all the other things that I've done, I I think, have been natural extensions of the fact that I'm a historian and a historian who writes about the relatively modern period. So there's a kind of overlap into certain uh, current events and current activities on which uh, perhaps I have some uh, worthwhile things to say, though it's for others to judge that. But it's certainly true that in the process of uh, being a historian in in Cambridge um, and uh, at Columbia University and then at the Institute of Historical Research and uh, subsequently here in Princeton, I don't think I ever really thought, certainly when I was setting out, that philanthropy would become a major theme either of my scholarly work or of my public activity. And the fact that it has uh, is a testimony to the, the view that one should never plan one's career in advance and leave plenty of time for contingency and accident and the unexpected. Um, When I was at the Institute of Historical Research in London, um, John Sainsbury um, put up money um, from the Limbury Trust, uh, the purpose of which was to move me on from being director of the Institute of Historical Research and to become uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother Professor of History. Uh, She had been the Chancellor of the University of London. And part of the purpose of that was to enable me to put myself about a bit uh, in the broader cultural world of London. And so I became a trustee of the Kennedy Memorial Trust, a commissioner of English heritage, was on the board and subsequently chairman of the National Portrait Gallery. I was on the Royal Mint Committee and various other things. And so that pushed me, albeit as a historian, I'd want to insist, 
into a broader world of public activity and engagement than I would ever have expected uh, to encounter. But along with all that, I became involved. And again, there was no, as it were, premeditated plan here with the world of philanthropy um, uh, at the Institute of Historical Research, of which I was director from 1998 to 2003. I raised about 15 million pounds, which was something I'd never expected to do. And I don't think anything anybody else ever expected me to do. Uh, when I was chairman of the trustees of the National Portrait Gallery, I was involved in uh, development work there. And I did the ask for the biggest gift, I think, in my time from Landy, Randy Lerner of about five million pounds. Um, as president of the British Academy, I've been raising money, or at least the development team have. And I, as it were, do what they tell me. Um, but I've also become a practitioner of philanthropy as a trustee of the Wilson Foundation. So I give away money which isn't mine, but people thank me for doing so. And that, of course, is hugely agreeable. And then I've also written about philanthropy. I wrote The Life of Andrew Mellon, uh, who, uh, among many other things, uh, gave his pictures and a huge amount of money to set up the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. in the 1930s. And my current big book project is a history of the Ford Foundation. So I'm uh, in different guises. I ask people for money. Uh, I give money away and I write about the people who have generated the money which uh, is given away in certain philanthropic areas. So I have a, an unexpected range of involvements with philanthropy and indeed a wholly unexpected involvement with philanthropy at all, given where I started out. And, and there's, there's certainly many of those things I, I want to pick up on about your academic career and the, and the work that you've been doing with your forthcoming book on the, the Ford Foundation uh, later on. And I suppose the first thing I wanted to ask was, you know, as a historian by, by training and kind of continuing profession, has that helped inform the, the practical work that you've done in philanthropy in any way? I mean, what sort of unique insight do you feel, if any, it's, it's brought uh, for you? Well, it's certainly true that um, I, I can claim to be a historian of philanthropy. And of course, in a way, I started out even earlier than I, my earlier remarks suggest, because um, I began uh, my career as a historian writing about the 19th century aristocracy. Um, and while uh, aristocrats have not on the whole in Britain given very large sums of money away, they were often uh, eager to put up money and provide land for churches on their estates. They gave money for local charities. And of course, in one or two cases, if one thinks of the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, uh, or of course the Wallace Collection, they did actually make atypically large gifts of considerable significance. Whether being a historian of philanthropy, either of that earlier aristocratic version or of the plutocratic American version, or perhaps the middle class British version of the 20th century, whether being a historian of uh, philanthropy means I bring to bear perspectives on it that other people don't have. Well, I suppose that's certainly true, that one has a sense of it as an evolving historical process. Whether it makes me any better at it or not, um, I think is probably for other people to judge. But I do think the history of philanthropy is a very important subject. And I think both in the United Kingdom and in the United States, it's a subject that needs more work than so far it's had. And, and to pick up on, on that in terms of the academic study, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree um, that it's something that could be studied far more. And I know from the, the contact that I've had with practitioners particularly that there's a huge appetite for, for knowing more about the historical context around what they do and often uh, more of a struggle to know you know, where to go for, for sources of information on that. It, do you think it's in any sense partly reflective of the fact that as a thematic area, philanthropy kind of cuts across traditional academic disciplines and even within history. I, I don't know whether 
practicing historians, many of them would think of themselves as historians of philanthropy, or it would just be one small element of a time period that they focused on. Well, it's certainly true if I think of someone like my good friend Frank Prohaska, that um, uh, he has written a, a great deal on philanthropy um, in 19th and 20th century Britain, uh, both on philanthropy as a kind of activity of uh, not especially rich people, but also philanthropy or a commitment to welfare on the part of the British monarchy. And though the books he's written on those subjects are, on, are very fine and of very serious scholarly merit. Um, but I think it's certainly true that quite a lot of what's been written on philanthropy, if it's histories of great foundations, either in the UK or the US, is, as it were, in-house institutional celebratory history. That's not true of all of them, but it's certainly true of quite a few. And of course, it's also the case that the, the, the act of focusing on the big names um, means that the philanthropy of ordinary individuals, for instance, in this country, the United States, where I'm, of course, conversing with you from, um, huge amounts of money is, for example, given to churches in the United States uh, in the form of small donations by ordinary people. And so while we tend to think of philanthropy as rich people setting up foundations which give lots of money, and that's certainly true, it's also the case that philanthropy has been and still is practiced by very large numbers of people at almost all social levels. And writing the history of that whole range of philanthropic activity, uh, from people giving money to their church collection every Sunday, to, as it were, Bill Gates, um, trying to find the appropriate conceptual framework and evidential base for writing the history of philanthropy across that amazing spectrum of activity and ranges of wealth, is, I think, quite hard to do. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, quite the contrary, but it is, it's a difficult subject in a way to get hold of in the right way. Agreed. I think it's endlessly fascinating and frustrating. Um, on that, do you do you think in some ways, your point there about um, capturing kind of everyday giving and some of that giving that's done between uh, people of modest means to people of modest means as well as, well as at a very high level, is, is that partly a reflection of a kind of um, archival asymmetry where it's actually you know it's the, the things that get recorded often are those that are put down um, by large institutions and and the donors that have that have founded them whereas actually capturing all of that information about giving by everyday people is likely to come from much more dispersed and disparate sources so it's that much harder to to, to sort of get your hands around. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we all know that if you want history and posterity to take notice of, you leave behind a big archive. Um, and if you don't do that, then uh, it's not going to work out well for you. And, you know, if I think of my own experience, I mean, I give certain amounts of money every month to certain charities, and I, I write some checks, as it were, around the holiday season at the end of the year. Um, uh, but, and, and, and lots of other people, of course, do that, and no doubt more generously than I do. But, you know, the evidence for that is to be found in individual bank statements or whatever, and nobody is going to trawl through all of those. And even if they do, all they end up with are a set of figures, but with no, as it were, correspondence to enliven it. So I do think that's a problem, that um, ordinary giving by ordinary people, um, you know, the acts of um, unknown kindness, as George Eliot says at some point famously, are evidentially not abundantly um, preserved. Um, I mean, there are ways through that, I suppose, if one thinks about Save the Children or Oxfam, that, as it were, uh, the sort of organisations to which lots of ordinary people give small donations, then there's a way of doing it that way. 
Um, but of course, that inevitably becomes again another institutional history that is of Oxfam or Save the Children, rather than uh, an attempt to explore broader patterns of small scale giving by large numbers of people, which I do agree, I think, is evidentially very hard to get hold of. Another question about uh, the way in which which philanthropy has been studied. It, it always strikes me that in terms of the framing of the, the history of philanthropy, apart from a few notable exceptions, there does tend to be quite a heavy skew towards the, the history of philanthropy um, in the US and particularly seeing the Gilded Age as the kind of key key place to, to go as a starting point. And then that sort of determines how the, the shape of the development of philanthropy is seen. And whilst there are, as I say, notable exceptions of looking back at the longer history of philanthropy in, in the UK, there's also, I think, a certain sense that when people, sort of modern people working in philanthropy think about that history, they're quite often drawn to thinking of it as something that is determined and shaped by the US and, and perhaps overlooking that our own rich history of philanthropy. Do you, do you get a sense that the kind of the UK perspective on the history of philanthropy is somewhat underappreciated sometimes? Well, I do think there is a lot of truth in that, that the, the, the kind of um, quintessential examples of philanthropy are often deemed to be the, the Gilded Age plutocrats in the United States who made their money in the late 19th and early 20th century and set up foundations, Carnegie and Rockefeller being the obvious two. But of course, it is important to remember that philanthropy uh, goes back at least to the wise men presenting gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh in the stable at Bethlehem. Um, and even if one takes the example of England, well, um, Sir Thomas Bodley was certainly around several centuries before the Gilded Age and the Bodleian Library remains a monument to his generosity and imagination. And it's interesting that in the late 1950s, the Ford Foundation commissioned two American historians, both of them at Harvard, uh, Professor Jordan and Professor Owen, to write histories of English philanthropy from Tudor times to as near the present day as possible in the hope that that might help the Ford Foundation, I think, get some kind of historical perspective on the antecedents to philanthropy, uh, which pre in the United Kingdom, or at least in England, which predated the Gilded Age era of philanthropy, to which, of course, uh, the Ford Foundation was itself a successor. Um, and so there is a kind of long range history of philanthropy in Britain, Chantry Chapels being, of course, another example uh, of rich people giving money. Um, for a variety of causes, uh, well before we reach the late 19th century and Gilded Age America. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm in, entirely sold on the merits of studying the, the history of philanthropy for its own sake, because I, I think it's sort of endlessly fascinating. I guess when I talk to people who are practitioners, they, they tend to have an interest in specific stories and themes insofar as they can be related in some way to, to practice but perhaps wouldn't go as far as kind of seeing something as a uh, the history of philanthropy is something they inherently wanted to study do you think that with that kind of more instrumentalist view of of history it is something that can be of use in informing practitioners and how does that happen I mean how do we bridge that gap between the, the academic rigour required to study it as an academic discipline and turning it into something that can meaningfully inform practice? Well, that is, uh, like all your previous interrogatives, a very good and very pertinent and very timely question. I suppose the way that I would think about it is that um, uh, history, as always, is the only record of, as it were, human endeavour that we've got before today. Um, there are many lessons to be learned from the past in almost all areas of human activity. 
I think in the case of philanthropy, the interesting question, which I hope would be one that current practitioners would agree is worth engaging with, is how one tries to evaluate how successful philanthropists in the past have been, uh, what are the criteria of evaluation for success, um, how one can, as it were, measure or uh, work out whether various philanthropic exercises have been successful or not, and as it were, what conclusions might be drawn from that for today's practitioners. I mean, one thought that, uh, as it were, would put a bit of flesh on the bones of that general observation would be that it's fairly easy to measure certain sorts of philanthropy. You know, if somebody comes to you and says, I want a hundred million pounds to build a museum and you give them a hundred million pounds and they build the museum, well, it's clearly worked. But if someone comes to you and says, I want to cure poverty in Africa, that's a wholly different scale of activity um, requiring far, far greater resources. And how will you know when you've done that? That set of issues seem to me to be much more complex and intractable. And I think the difference between specifically targeted philanthropy, often to do with higher education, often to do with culture, uh, often to do with medicine uh, or even engineering, on the one side and on the other side, these broader aspirations to improve society, to overcome AIDS, uh, to defeat poverty, to improve education of women in Africa, for example. Those seem to me to be utterly admirable and completely noble aspirations, but how exactly um, you go about doing so and what the historical precedents tell you about the likelihood of success or the means of evaluation are, I think, a different set of questions. But all of those issues do seem to me to be ones where there are indeed lessons to be learned from the past. Though that requires, as it were, a history of philanthropy in its own turn to be perhaps often slightly more rigorous and maybe even critical than, as it were, celebratory in-house histories tend in general to have been. I absolutely agreed. And I think it's interesting that I think there is, I've, I've certainly noticed more willingness to engage with that sort of critical aspect of what history can tell us about philanthropy, whilst remaining sort of broadly positive about its potential by people working within the field. And I, I think one thing I was thinking is, as you were speaking there, that that I always think is an interesting question is if practitioners engage with the history of philanthropy as a discipline that can inform their field, to what extent are they limited by their potentially their lack of wider knowledge of the various different contexts of the eras within which some of these historical examples might be taking place? So, for instance, if we're looking in the UK to examples from the Victorian era, which is often where quite a lot of you know historical examples about philanthropy come, do do we as practitioners who are looking at those examples of philanthropy risk taking the wrong lessons from them if we don't understand more broadly what was happening in society and, and politics in that period? Um, and is it the role of sort of academic historians to help practitioners navigate some of that? Yes, I think it is. I mean, clearly, uh, if one thinks about the 19th century, which was indeed an age of very vigorous philanthropy in Britain, but one would need to think about the particular nature of the economy, uh, the particular form that great wealth took. What was it? It was in land, it was in banking, 
um, uh, it's fair to say, and only in the late 19th century did it move to uh, forms of wealth in, for instance, the retailing industry, and I suppose ultimately the manufacture of car- manufacturing of cars, so that one would need to get a sense of the, the, the nature of wealth, whereas now, of course, there are these staggeringly rich people who, in a sense, don't own physical assets in the way that landowners or industrialists or even bankers did. And that, I think, is the sort of change broader context within which it would be helpful for current practitioners of philanthropy to situate their own uh, impulses towards benevolence. I think that's important. I think the notion of what are fit areas for philanthropy is also something that has changed over time. And I suppose the nature of philanthropic organisations have also changed over time, certainly from the the perpetual family established foundation, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Ford in particular, to the sense now of philanthrocapitalism, of people wanting to give away money in their own lifetime. That's been a big change. And I suppose also just something else that might emerge from taking a longer view. What are the abilities that you need to be an expert philanthropist? And do those change over time? And what is the connection between those and making money? Are the skills required to make money the same as the skills required to give it away? And where in that world then do the people called philanthropoids, that's to say the philanthropic bureaucrats fit, the people who later on in certain foundations, as it were, take over from the family, uh, have never made the money, um, don't feel that close sense of family connection with the money, um, and in certain cases, take perhaps the foundations in different direction from those the donors would have thought of. All those seem to me to be a very serious set of very important issues where the historical context change over time and from which there is a great deal to be learned about what's happening now. Absolutely. Your, your mention there of uh, philanthropoids, which is a wonderful word, which is one of my favourites, um, brings me on to, I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about the work that you've been doing on the, the Ford Foundation. And it, it's a neat link, I think, because when when I was sort of thinking about uh, talking to you about this, it struck me that the Ford Foundation's had some fascinating figures that have worked for it and, and wielded huge amounts of influence really and, and sort of written and thought quite a lot about philanthropy and people like McGeorge Bundy and Paul Ilversacker and, and others but they, they do seem like understudied figures in many ways and there are many others in kind of other institutions do you, do you feel as though that that role of those philanthropoids or those who kind of have the responsibility for distributing large amounts of money that are not their own is is something that is underappreciated historically? Yes, I do. I mean, I, I've come to feel, I mean, I've done, I've drafted 12 chapters of my history of the Ford Foundation, there'll probably be another eight to go, which I want to get finished um, within the next 12 or 18 months. There are many different ways, as I've discovered, of writing the history of a foundation. Um, you know, you can do the high politics of the board and the presidents and the founding family. Uh, you can do relations with government, with the media, with congressional investigations, in the case of the Ford Foundation in Washington. Uh, You could do their relations with ideas, uh, sociology, development economics, human rights, uh, women's studies are all important, and there are others in the history of the Ford Foundation. You can do uh, the way they decide which programs to fund um, and whether the the programs work or not. Um, and, And since there have been many tens of thousands of grants given out by the Ford Foundation, that of itself is a huge job. But clearly central to all of this Um, and I'm still trying to get a satisfactory expositional structure in the case of Ford to cover all these things and not to make it, as it were, incoherent. 
uh, is or was and still is, of course, under Darren Walker, in the case of the Ford Foundation, the successive uh, presidents, um, of whom I suppose um, George Bundy certainly ranks as one of the most significant. Um, he was the longest serving president uh, during the time he was president for much of the late 1960s and most of the 1970s. Uh, he'd come, of course, having bailed out from the Kennedy LBJ White House, having been National Security Advisor and having been associated with the debacle of the Bay of Pigs and also the increasing debacle of the Vietnam War. He was a Boston Brahmin. Uh, he was brought to school. He was Yale and Skull and Bones and he was Harvard and the Society of Fellows. I mean, by American standards, he was both the aristocracy of birth and the meritocracy of talent. And he was clearly very clever. And there isn't any doubt that reading uh, his letters, his documents, his reports during the time he was at the Ford Foundation, you feel you're encountering a very interesting mind. And Bundy did a huge amount of things at the Ford Foundation. He wanted, of course, to make dealing with the problem of race absolutely central to the foundation. And that in its day was very audacious, this grand Boston Brahmin saying race is the problem, we've got to fix it. Well, in the end, of course, and as we know, um, they didn't fully fix it if they had Black Lives Matter wouldn't matter, which it does. But Bundy invested a huge amount of personal prestige and the foundation's funding in seeking to fix the ghettos, to fix the problem of race. And he also invested a huge amount of prestige in trying to establish public broadcasting as being on the same level as the BBC in Britain. Neither of those things worked in the way he wanted. But he was also hugely influential in promoting women's studies, black studies, ethnic studies as fields of endeavor, and later on in taking up uh, human rights and disarmament. So he was a very, very influential figure. Uh, I think in the end, he made up his mind too quickly about things and only later on came to understand that many of the issues he wanted to deal with were just much more complicated than he originally thought. And even though the Ford Foundation was, at least up until 1974, fabulously rich, the richest in the world, uh, an endowment of three, three or four billion dollars, um, its resources were actually not sufficient to fix poverty in India or to fix the ghettos in America. No, absolutely. And I guess that's often, you know, seems to be the story of, of philanthropy, that kind of uh, vaulting ambition actually brought down to realisation that, that the complexity of these problems and the scale of them means that philanthropy is very unlikely to be able to, to solve them by itself. Um, in, in terms of the Ford Foundation and the question of history informing current practice, I think it's, I mean, it's such a fascinating one because it seems to me from what, what I know of the history as though their involvement certainly in, in the 60s and 70s around issues to do with um, uh, kind of black power movements and, and, uh, and their support for that is an area in which there has been some scholarly work done and, and some interesting sort of critical scholarship about the role the Ford Foundation played, not so much in saying that they were malignly motivated, but actually just by virtue of their size and the choices they made about who to fund, they skewed a field and had an effect in terms of co-opting social movements or kind of uh, taming them in some sense, which again feels very relevant to the, the present day and the moment we're in where there's a lot of discussion about the relationship between uh, foundations and, and social movements that we're seeing being very prominent. Um, do you think there, you know, there is anything useful we can learn from, from that history of the Ford Foundation on, on that topic today? Well, it's certainly interesting that for much of its history, <clears throat> um, 
certainly beginning uh, in the 1950s and certainly through until the end of the Bundy era, the Ford Foundation found itself being criticised from both the right and the left. Uh, the criticisms from the right were that it was a, a, a subversive organisation. This begins with McCarthyism in the, in the early 1950s, that it was supporting uh, communist uh, agitators in America who sought to, uh, as it were, undermine the basis of American society. Bundy was deeply criticized for um, his apparent flirtation with the Black Power movement, for giving money to some staffers from Bobby Kennedy's campaign in the aftermath of Kennedy's assassination. Um, and there was a view that it was very radical um, it was supporting a whole variety of, as it were, unwise and ill-judged uh, causes in the United States. Um, and so that was the criticism which came from uh, the right. Uh, and of course, that was inflected sociologically in Bundy's case, because he was seen as a traitor to his class. That's to say, here was this grand Boston Brahmin um, uh, deciding that, we should, that the Ford Foundation should be worried about blacks and about poor people. Um, and that wasn't what Boston Brahmins were supposed to do. They were supposed to keep the American East Coast establishment going. And Bundy seemed to be threatening to subvert the East Coast establishment. So that was the criticism from the right. The criticism from the left was twofold. Um, one was that all the funding that under Bundy and his predecessors was going overseas, initially to South Asia, subsequently to the Middle East and to Africa and to Latin America, that this was neo-imperialism. Um, that, as it were, many colonial uh, empires, the European colonial empires had disappeared in the aftermath of the Second World War, especially in uh, India, the Middle East and uh, South uh, and, and Africa. But that what they had done uh, very sadly was, as it were, exchange the thraldom of European imperialism for the even greater thraldom of American neo-imperialism and that the uh, Ford Foundation was the handmaid of American neo-imperialism. So that was one criticism from the left, both in the United States uh, and increasingly in South Asia and in Latin America, uh, in a criticism increased by the exposure of the CIA as having been murkily involved in some of these things as well. And the second criticism from the left, and it remains to this day, is that the attempts to improve, for instance, the ghettos, uh, the attempts to promote women's studies, black studies, ethnic studies, are in the end, as it were, if not exactly dishonest, then disingenuous, because their effect is to uh, buy off um, leaders, uh, academic leaders, political leaders, community leaders, um, and as it were, envelop them in the embrace of the Ford Foundation, whereas life for most people doesn't change at all. And so what you get is in fact a perpetuation of social and economic and political hierarchies with a few of these previously outside and marginalized people bought off and brought in. Uh, but that the attempt to, as it were, completely restructure society on the basis of a greater degree of equality in the end was either never really seriously embraced or even if it was seriously embraced, didn't work. And so Bundy's foundation in particular found itself being attacked from both the right and the left. I think one answer to that might be that that, might could, that could have meant that he was sort of getting it about right, really. I mean, I think the, the criticism from the right were extremely exaggerated and settled on a few 
um, very atypical uh, projects that the foundation had funded. Uh, on the whole, um, the foundation's funding for much of it, even under Bundy, was actually fairly conservative. On the other side, I think the criticism from the left that you know that that that, that, um, that, that the the basic social hierarchy remained in some senses fundamentally unaltered, even if a bit augmented, may indeed have been true. But I mean, Bundy was clearly never going to overthrow society, and I think um, there was more to what Bundy was trying to do than just to say, "I want to re-legitimate uh, the world of the American establishment by buying off." some African-Americans and some women. I think there was always more to what he was trying to do than that. I think that sort of nuanced view is is really important. And I'm sure for people listening, a lot of what you were saying there about the, those uh, criticisms from both sides will resonate enormously with a lot of the current debate about philanthropy. Um, and, and it seems that the Ford Foundation, there's, there's an obvious argument for studying it just surely by virtue of its scale and its kind of historical importance. And I think the things that, that come out of the book will have much wider relevance across uh, philanthropy, I'm sure. In terms of the view of the Ford Foundation itself of the, the book and the work you're doing on it, what, what has their perception been of you know, the value to them as an institution? Are they supportive of that? Do they kind of welcome the view of of a, an outsider who might be looking at it in a you know in, a, in at times a critical way you know it's not designed to be a hagiography as an institution have they been supportive of that yes they've been very supportive i mean <clears throat> the person with whom i've worked most closely on this uh, is darren walker the president uh, of whom i'm certainly an admirer and i would want absolutely to declare that interest but the understanding that he and i have is that this will be um uh, an external history. It's seen by Darren, I think it's fair to say, as part of one of his presidential policies and priorities, which is a greater degree of openness and transparency on the part of the history of the foundation, so that uh, far more now of the foundation's archives are available at the Rockefeller Archive Centre where they're deposited than they were in earlier times. Bundy, for instance, wasn't interested really in um, transparency and openness. In fact, I think he was rather against it. So I think that this book is seen as part of that agenda. And I'm very comfortable with that because um, I'm certainly not going to be pulling punches uh, in what I write. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've yet found any major skeletons in the closet that hadn't already been written about by other people. But I certainly think that trying to write a history of the foundation which explains how it's evolved over time, how it's moved from one set of areas domestically and internationally into other sets of areas, how far what it's done has been successful or not, what the criteria are for success. Um, I think that that's not something that um, there's no such history of the Ford Foundation that exists which is trying to do that. And I'm not sure there are many other histories of many other foundations in America, let alone in Britain, which are trying to do that. So I hope it will um, provide um, that it will be of interest to current trustees um, and to people who work for the foundation, both in the United States and overseas, in giving them some sense of, as it were, the story before they came on board. And uh, maybe uh, it will provide a kind of um, academic institutional memory, if I can put it that way, which I hope will be of interest and of value. And I hope beyond that, as you've already suggested, that um, it will of itself be a contribution to 
the sort of current debates that are raging about philanthropy, the, the relative merits of perpetual foundations run by philanthropoids versus philanthrocapitalism, where the person who's made, made the money wants to spend it. Clearly, the practice of the Ford Foundation is a major um, contributor to that debate. At least that's how I, in part, intend to write the book. And also, I think the, the, the issue, which again is getting more ventilation, how far is philanthropy, however well meant, on, uh, as practiced by very large foundations, fundamentally anti-democratic because trustees are self-perpetuating. Uh, they decide what the public good is to which, uh, to the promotion of which they will give their money, but that they're not in any other way responsible. Foundations don't, in a sense, have shareholders. They don't have customers. Um, they are strange groups, and I think it'll be interesting to see uh, when the whole book is done what people feel about how well the trustees and the succession of presidents have managed um, that responsibility. I think it's something else which I think is important to discuss but slightly difficult to handle is that one of the advantages of foundations is they can afford to make mistakes. Um, they can put money into things that maybe don't work. Um, they can take risks and some of those risks come off and some don't. Uh, they can be flexible and nimble in the way that the juggernauts of government not necessarily can be. So that the whole notion of how you evaluate how foundations do is, I think, quite an interesting subject. And I'm hoping to make some contribution to that general discussion via the specific example of the Ford Foundation. I think it, I mean, it sounds fascinating. I think that question of whether part of the justification for foundations as institutions within a democracy is that they move things forward through social innovation and discovery is is really important and whether that whether actually being anti-democratic in some sense or having a lack of accountability as a precondition i think is a really interesting question or whether uh, you know sometimes it's argued by foundations more as a sort of justification for the slightly awkward situation in which they find themselves. Um, so no, I really look forward to, to reading the book when it does come out. Well, I look forward to it as well, but anyway, it's it's not that <laughs> So um, Absolutely. I mean, it is worth just saying that, of course, in Britain, there is the Charity Commission. So there is a sense in which foundations in Britain are accountable. I, I have to say, I'm not aware of an equivalent organisation in America, but certainly in Britain, there is some degree of accountability. And that, I think, is important. I think so. Yeah, I think it's always very important with when talking. I mean, apart from anything else, there isn't really such a thing as a legal structure for foundations in the UK as in the same way as there is in the US. So actually, we talk as if they are synonymous and, and lessons read across from the one context to the other. And I think you do have to be quite careful, as you say, for to make it clear that there are quite significant differences. Um, I, I'm aware that I'm in danger of taking up altogether too much of your time because I'm finding this conversation very interesting. But um, one one area that I, I really wanted to touch on with you because it felt very pertinent to the question of how kind of historical insight can be of use now um, in in light of kind of current issues within within the world of philanthropy um, is around the question of sources of wealth and and what implications those have for organisations and institutions accepting donations or sort of finding that actually after the fact they they find that um the sources of that donations are somehow problematic and, and this is not a new question so i guess a historical view 
teaches you that this whole question of tainted donations has been around since time immemorial. Uh, and also some of the sources of those wealth are historical ones and, and that you know, sort of presents particular challenges. But have you found in uh, some of the roles that, that you've had as a, as a chair or as a trustee of institutions that you've had to face some of these challenges about whether or not to turn down or return donations? And has your expertise in history kind of helped you to have some context that informs that? Well, it's certainly true that the relationship between the way in which money has been accumulated um, and willingness to accept it on the part of an organisation in need uh, is one that has been historically of major significance. And the, the, as it were, the use of philanthropy as a way of enhancing people's reputations, uh, whether in this world, I mean, there is uh, allegedly some quite close relation between certain philanthropists and acquiring peerages and sitting in the House of Lords. But of course, in earlier times, you gave money for chantry chapels in the hope that if you were prayed for every day, you would have a better time in heaven than you otherwise might, which is another, I suppose, version of, as it were, attempts to produce reputational self-enhancement. Um, and it's certainly true if one thinks of some of the great robber barons, uh, I use great in a quantitative sense here, um, then whatever they claimed their motives were, uh, there's certainly some uh, evidence in the case, for instance, of the first great Rockefeller, or in the case of Frick, or in the case of Mellon, that there was an attempt to um, reinvent themselves as uh, socially concerned and culturally civilised people, even if the means whereby they had got their money um, were, for example, involved setting uh, troops on their workers, uh, or if they didn't start out their lives particularly cultured. So that the sense that philanthropy was a way of uh, creating a wholly new persona, one might want to say, has been, I think, quite important. And in the old days, the notion that um, you were willing to that a potential recipient of donations from people like that was willing to go along with it, uh, that's to say to be party to this attempt to reinvent oneself on the part of a rich donor. Uh, they were willing to go along with that in the belief that it really didn't matter where the money came from uh, because you could do good with it uh, once you got it. And that that was in a sense the deal that um, rich people gave money to poor institutions, poor institutions conveyed respectability on the rich people if they didn't already have it. And that was a very, as it were, symmetrical sociological and financial and reputational arrangement. I think in recent years or recent decades, it would be fair to say, we have now moved into a rather different world and that in, in two ways. One, that um, organizations in search of money uh, have become much more scrupulous, much more skeptical, much more careful about the sorts of people from whom they would take money. And so most organizations now have acceptance of gift groups or whatever they may be called, ethics committees, which seek to evaluate um, the ethical standing um, and ethical of donors and the ethical origins or otherwise of their fortune. And if they are deemed to be unethical, then conversations about money don't go any further. Um, and so the old days of, as it were, reputational redemption via philanthropy don't seem to work anymore. There's now a much stronger sense that um, philanthropists have to have made their money in decent ways. So that's one side of it. And of course, ironically, at a time, especially with COVID, when organisations are desperate for more and more money from private donors, it's actually um, diminishing the potential pool of donors if 
um, the only people you'll take money from are people who have made it in an untainted way. I mean, I accept that there is a strong argument for that, but one can't deny what the consequences are of the sort I've just described. On the other side, as uh, recipients are becoming more demanding about the ethical purity of donors and their money, donors on their side are often becoming increasingly demanding about setting performance indicators if they are to give money. Um, in a way that, again, I think is much more rigorous than it used to be. This is, as it were, the, the influence of financial capitalism. So the whole donor-donee uh, relationship has kind of ratcheted up with greater demands on one side of moral and eth ethical purity, and on the other side, greater demands of accountability and of um, ticking boxes meeting targets um, and checking the performance indicators. Now, quite where that's going to go going forward, I think it's it's hard to tell, but I think it's certainly clear that we are in a different climate. I mean, I remember Darren Walker saying when he came and um, did a conversation at the British Academy with me, he said, it's very important that philanthropists no longer expect people to be grateful. And that in the old days, in earlier times, people were grateful. And I think that's a very pithy summation of the change in mood and indeed the changes in modes of activity that have occurred in, in recent times. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And I, yeah, I think it's, as you say, that, that dynamic between those making the, the gifts and those receiving them does, does seem to have shifted in, in interesting ways. Um, I just wanted to ask one, one final question. For, for those institutions that are sort of grappling with where money may have come from more historically, a lot of them are sort of thinking through and looking back. And in the UK, you know, lots of institutions have histories stretching back hundreds of years. So they will have had money from all sorts of places over time. And lots of those, you know, seen through a modern eye look quite problematic. And as institutions try to grapple with that, you know, do, you, do you think it's important for philanthropic institutions like foundations to to sort of face up to some of these challenges and get to grips with them and how best do they do that in an environment where it seems to me actually the the very sort of act of looking into history is becoming unfortunately you know more politicized it's not a kind of a neutral thing to be doing at this point in time and does that in itself present challenges for for institutions that that want to do that well i certainly think it's true that quite a lot of institutions are going through difficult times with uh historical gifts which uh, at the time they were made were very generous and which since then it could be argued have done a lot of good but where the uh, the business or personal or morals or political attitudes of the donor no longer seem to our rather different and I suppose we would like to think improved sensibilities to be acceptable any longer. Uh, I mean my own position on this for what it's worth is that I think there are no um, easy answers to these ethical questions and historical questions. Um, and the only way to proceed is to try to do so on a kind of case-by-case -case basis. Um, but I, I do think that they can be very difficult. They can be very vexed if one thinks of the, the issues over Cecil Rhodes in Oxford at the moment as a classic example of that. Um, and I, I mean, there is a, a committee at the moment, I think, sitting 
uh, which may report quite soon as to whether Rhodes's statue should be removed from the uh, main entrance of Oriel College, where he was, of course, an undergraduate. Uh, it's hard to believe that whatever recommendation they make will command universal assent. Um, but uh, I hope that the investigation will have been thorough and rigorous. And uh, it may well be that whatever it is, it will command um, majority support, even though others may not like it. And I think that these issues are complicated. They are vexed. They are difficult. Um, and I think they have to be worked through as best they can. Um, we live in a very polarized and binary world about these issues as about many others. And I think the challenge is to try to find a way through which um, recognizes the complexities of the issues and tries to reach some workable solution on the basis of that recognition. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And I, th I think that the, the importance of recognizing that complexity and the fact that any answer needs to be nuanced is, is hugely important. So I think it's just the unfortunate challenge is that nuance is not always the most popular position uh, at the moment. But but I totally agree. That's 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 exactly what's required. Um, listen, David, I'm aware that I'm in danger of taking up far too much of uh, what is your morning. So um, it really just remains to say thank you ever so much for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating having the chance to, to talk to you about this. Um, is there anything you would like to draw people's attention to um, other than the book when, when that's coming out um, before you go? I don't think so. I mean, um, don't hold your breath about the book. I mean, <laughs> well, well on um, and will appear. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, uh, I'm in the business of trying to raise money for the British Academy. So if anybody at the moment, so if anybody who listens is listening to this uh, has any suggestions as to where I might look for benefactors who care about the role of the humanities and social sciences in our world today, I would love to hear from them. Um, but I think apart from that, uh, Rodri, thank you for having uh, been such an imaginative and generous interlocutor. I too have enjoyed this conversation. And I would want to repeat that I can only say how lucky I feel to have found myself um, working in different ways in this world of philanthropy, which I think is complex, uh, controversial, but an enormously exciting one. And I count it a great privilege to have played, uh, albeit only a minor part, in some of these important uh, issues and activities, which do seem to me to be so important. And indeed, and of course, I would end by saying this, to need a greater historical perspective on them than perhaps often is available. Excellent. A fine note on which to finish. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to David for coming on the podcast. I will, as ever, put links in the show notes to lots of the things that we discussed today and other bits of writing that are relevant. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis, or particularly if you're interested in the history of philanthropy, uh, check out at Philiteracy, which is the Twitter feed I have where I look more at sort of uh, history and academic stuff study of philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for other subjects we could cover on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you pick up the show, uh, and I will see you next time. Bye! Bye!